Hello everybody and welcome back to Liza's Lab. This week we will start to lay out the general timeline and the history of ballet dance. If you tuned in last week, we discussed the precursor to ballet dance, Baroque dance, and court dances. Um, this week we will kind of connect the two and see how it drives the future of ballet. So this week we only had one reading and it was called Ballet, A History in Broad Brushstrokes by Carol Pardo. As the title hints, it gave a brief overview of the evolution of ballet and there are six main time periods that we are going to briefly discuss today. So the first time period um, was Baroque dance or in the court dances, which was around the 15th and 16th centuries. Now we, this is kind of what we discussed last week, um, and it's truly the roots of ballet. Court dance had specific footwork, formations, and emphasized poise. The use of turnout came from fencing, as we mentioned last week, and the evolution of the bar started in this era. So many details that are relevant to ballet today began with Baroque and court dances. We also discussed uh, Louis XIV, who was a very important person to ballet because he helped revolutionize and institute ballet officially through um, the creation of a school in France and what is known as today the Paris Opera, which is the first official ballet theater. So as we mentioned last week, ballet continued to grow and change over time and eventually start to make its way to the proscenium stage. This is where we kind of see the creation of ballet as a profession. There are dancers, there are choreographers, even directors, sometimes costuming, things like that, um, start coming into play a little bit more. And so as it makes the way to the stage, the first category we're going to kind of talk about beyond court dances and Baroque dance is called ballet d'action. Um, this is French, obviously, and it was originated around the 18th century. So obviously it's grown past that time period of Baroque dance and has continued to um, evolve into this more professional and would be more recognizable as what we see ballet as today. So one big thing that happened in this time period was it got they got rid of masks, makeup, heavy costuming, and they really aimed to show more pure emotion rather than the intricacy and the preciseness that was prevalent in court dances. Of course, the technique was still very important, but ballet d'action really means dramatic ballet. And so it was all about the drama. It was all about the emotion. Um, one person who was really important to this time period was Jean-Georges um, Nouvert. And he was the one who really pushed for this almost purity in ballet. He really pushed to get rid of the mask, the makeup, and the heavy costuming. He really wanted to strip it down a little bit more and make it a little bit more personal to who was watching and who was performing. The next era we're going to discuss is Romantic Ballet. It began in the early 19th century, and it's important to note that this is building off of ballet to action. So all of the drama, the costuming, the lack of masks and makeup, was still prevalent and still was building off of this. So there's similar imagery and they do of course cross over. This didn't just, there wasn't a shift just one day. Um, so romantic ballet, the important thing to note is that the audience changed, which is kind of the big difference between ballet to action and romantic ballet. So the audience shifted to the middle class um, because of the French Revolution. The French Revolution, obviously prior to the king was in power. And so it's all about the, um, the royal people, the courts, the upper class were all attending the ballet. Whereas after the French Revolution, the middle class, they were attending, attending the ballet. And so the stories that were originally 
for the upper class were about gods and myths. Um, but since the audience shifted, you see the plots begin to change to appeal to your middle class audience. They're a little bit more personable. They're a little bit more kind of your average day stories. Um, and they're based off of the culture that they're present in. So August Bourneville popularized romantic ballet in Denmark because all of the ballets he created were based on Nordic gods, which was a huge part of common culture in Denmark. He was also very adamant about writing things down. So he's kind of a big part of history because although his ballets didn't survive, he really helped to institute ballet further. Um, the importance of writing things down kind of helps us understand the evolution of ballet, the roots of ballet, and inspirations as well. He was also very adamant about um, the male role in ballet. Now today we kind of have a mixed um, emotions about men in ballet and men in dance, and of course it should be very much supported. But at the time, ballet was originally very male dominated. Um, but during romantic ballet, with the change of plots, we also see um, more women on stage than men. So the shift has started where it used to be all men on stage doing all roles to women dominating, and even sometimes they're playing men's roles. This is mostly due to the creation of the point shoe during this era. So women were able to essentially compete. Um, they were put on a pedestal, yes, but like literally they were taller because of point shoes. They could jump more, they could overall perform more, and it was more pleasing to the audience. Um, one critique of a ballet actually cre um, said that the men in the show were, I think like heinous or something was the word that they decided to use. Um, so August Bourneville really fought to make sure that the male role was still appreciated as it should be. Um, of course that didn't really work out for him necessarily. He did his best, but we do continuously see a decline in the male role, um, for a few years to come. The next era is we're going to kind of combine because for me, there isn't really a solid switch. It's just a general progression. So we see classical ballet and neoclassical ballet that really take root in Russia. So in the late 19th century into the 20th century, we see Russia begin to really step up in the ballet world. France was in political turmoil, so Russia begins to take their choreographers, their dancers, along with they also recruit from Italy, Denmark, kind of all over Europe. And they create this beautiful salad bowl of people who have been trained and also have creative ideas that they want to use and see come to fruition. A lot of them sometimes trained at the Imperial School in Russia, but a lot also trained with people that we had mentioned above in different eras and have different roots. Um, one person that was really important to classical ballet in Russia is um, Moriz Petipa. Now he's the first, not necessarily the first, I guess. He is known for splitting ballets into acts. Um, this was kind of kind of kind of a surprise to me because I had always thought of ballets kind of being in two acts, but not necessarily. A lot of times they were either shorter performances, but he created a formula for how ballets were then consumed. And it's obviously it's stuck because I struggled to think of ballets in any other way. Moreover, he continued with the ideas um, that made plots more personable, more regular, more everyday, that really appealed to audiences everywhere because a lot of Russian ballets continued to travel around the country, around the world, 
and share the performances. And it was a beautiful experience, but also had to be universally experienced. So all of the storylines had to be rather accessible. Another person who's really important to ballet in Russia is Michael Folkin. He was trained with the Imperial Ballet, and he used history and stories to create his ballets. Now, he had a lot of uh, different ideas, and he was originally going to try to produce things in Denmark and France, but he ended up being recruited by Sergei Diaghilev. I believe that's how you say that. And he was the um, leader of Ballet Russe. Essentially, he was their like director. He wasn't a dancer himself, but he had an eye for talent. So he brought in Michael Folkin, who really helped um, put Ballet Russe on the map. He had a lot of different, very popular ballets and really used history and stories to create beautiful ballets that everyone loved. And that really le leads um, into the neoclassical era. This is a little bit later into the 20th century and on. And these stories continue to be performed everywhere. A, a bunch of dancers trained under or with Michael Folkin at Ballet Russe, including um, Najinsky, Najinska, um, Balanchine was also there. And Chiquetti also is a person, which I didn't know, um, is a person and also trained with Ballet Russe. So a lot of these big names are currently or were currently in Russia, all training and performing together. Um, however, when Sergei Diaghilev, the director, died, the ballet kind of did too, the ballet company, because he was kind of running the entire show. So without him, we see this great dispersion of this amazing talent. And that leads us into the neoclassical kind of contemporary modern ballet area that we are sort of still in now. Finally, we have the modern contemporary ballet era. And it's really the second part of the 20th century onward where arguably still in contemporary ballet era. We'll never really know until we look back at it anyway. Um, but this follows the um, downfall of Ballet Russe essentially because everyone who's a part of their company, everyone who's a choreographer kind of disperses all across the world. So England gets Cicchetti, who was obviously training there and choreographing there. And so he will goes and starts to codify his own technique. They also get Anthony Tudor, who was a student of Folkin's, and so he kind of carries on um, Folkin's ideals. Similarly, um, they also get Sir Frederick Ashton, who was Petipa's pupil, essentially. And there's one quote that was really beautiful, um, that he had seen Sleeping Beauty hundreds and hundreds of times. And they were like, why are you still coming back and watching it? And he was like, because I'm learning from Petipa. And that's um, really beautiful, just because they still held the same ideals and really were trying to learn from what had um, come before them and trying to build on it and also had a great amount of respect for who had trained them. Um, so then following also, there were people who also immigrated to the U.S. So we get Eugene Loring, who helped set up the um, ABT branch in the U.S. So ABT is American Ballet Theater, and it was set up by primarily by Eugene Loring, but he had a lot of help. So basically, it became an international hub of ballet knowledge. All of these students and choreographers that came out of Ballet Russe were obviously still very connected. So Eugene Loring started this school in the U.S. that had um, would have a lot of international visitors. 
So they got a lot of teaching from, they learned from Anthony Tudor, Sir Frederick Ashton, Chiquetti came, like everybody was there. And it was a huge institution. And of course, there were many choreographers, many directors that helped, many costuming designers, lighting designers. It was a huge thing. Everyone needed to be there. Um, and it's very important and still very relevant today. I've, I personally have attended an ABT summer intensive, and so it's really cool to understand the history behind it. Um, furthermore, George Balanchine also immigrated to the U.S. So George Balanchine, along with the help of Lincoln Kirsten, created the School of American Ballet, and that soon followed with the creation of New York City Ballet. This is just huge because it wasn't necessarily the first ballet company, but it was so new and exciting in the environment allowed for so much new creation that this is really kind of where the contemporary ballet era starts for me. Our bunch of people would argue different things. It doesn't always start in one day either. But Balanchine really redefined ballet. He had an emphasis on musicality that was unlike anyone else's. He also had a tendency, not always, but wasn't as plot driven when he was um, creating works for people. So obviously there were still plots, there were still feelings and stories being told, but a lot of the times it was dance for dance sake. He also had a very minimalist design. A lot of times um, performers would be just in a leotard and tights or maybe a wrap skirt every once in a while, um, but it wasn't very intricate. The costuming wasn't, but of course the footwork and everything was continuing to grow, change, become quicker, more advanced really. And it was a really exciting time. Furthermore, Balanchine also was one of the first to begin to collaborate with modern dancers. So Balanchine actually collaborated with Martha Graham, neither of which were very happy about it. But this convergence of two different styles really has continued to push the form into what we know as today because there are companies that identify as modern ballet or contemporary ballet companies, sometimes modern ballet companies. companies, but there's a whole new genre that was really unlocked with their collaboration and many more following. Furthermore, um, Twyla Tharp actually choreographed um, a bunch of different pieces. Now, she was originally a modern dancer and started to get a little bit more of a ballet education and has choreographed so many pieces that are adored by modern and ballet fans alike. And so we see how these two styles start to merge and start to learn from one another to continue to push both of their forms forward. And that's just really beautiful to see. Now that's kind of the end of my general timeline. And of course we covered a lot. There's so much more, there's so many more people and things, but that's a general outline of the face value evolution of ballet. Um, Of course, there's so much more, and I think there's going to be so much more we're going to discuss in the next couple weeks. But there are a couple questions I wanted to pose to you guys before I ended this episode for this week. And so things that came up for me, um, I'm really curious about the convergence of modern and ballet that we discussed in this last little bit. Um, I'm curious as to what you guys think if that's part of the evolution of ballet. Are we creating a whole new style? Or are these going to be like permanent changes in the style? So I know there are some concerns almost about where ballet is going and how it's become more contemporary than we've seen it in the past. 
Um, it's becoming a little bit more fluid and more also accepting kind of a little less rigid of technique that we've seen in the different eras. So I'm curious as to what you guys think. Is this like a healthy change? Is this a whole different style that's being born? Um, yeah, I don't really know. Part of me, I personally like contemporary ballet a little bit more than I like classical ballet that we are often seeing like in a classroom or like at a dance recital. I'm liking the companies that take on more abstract themes and also challenge the shapes of ballet. However, I'm not sure if that's honoring the roots or if that's making the technique more lax. I don't think it is, but I'm curious as to what you guys think, as always. And my second question that came up is, is ballet the most globalized style of dance, despite it being so like exclusive and hard to learn, honestly, and not always accessible? Is it still the most globalized? Because this dispersion of ballet russe really allowed for this expansion of ballet technique. And you can almost walk up to anyone and ask them, hey, do you know a ballet step? And they'll do something random, um, but they'll still have a picture in their head. Whereas I don't know if everyone can do that for tap dance or for jazz dance or for West African dance and anything that's a just different style. I'm curious as to why that is, if it really is just because of the dispersion of ballet russe and the traveling of ballet companies, or if there's a deeper reason that we could figure out. I think that'll be something we'll be able to unpack more in the future. But that's all I have for you guys today. Um, please let me know what you think of those questions. I think I'll return to them and hopefully with new information to support it. Thank you guys so much. Have a great week.